Hello and welcome to episode 50 of the Fundraising Bright Spots podcast. My name is Rob Woods and this is the show for anyone who works in fundraising and who wants ideas to help you raise more money, really enjoy your job and make a bigger difference, especially during the pandemic. And this time, if you're looking for helpful principles to guide your fundraising decisions over the coming weeks and months, I hope you're going to find today's episode really interesting. Because this time I'm sharing the second part of an interview I carried out recently with Richard Turner about a fascinating piece of research that he and his colleagues Giles Pegram and Angela Clough have carried out under the auspices of the Chartered Institute of Fundraising's Supporter Experience Group. Over recent months, they've searched out charities of different sizes and with different causes that have been working especially hard to give supporters a great experience. They've then created an excellent report, as well as an inspiring webinar sharing the six principles that these charities have followed to generate their success. I'll put details for where you can find their report, Fundraising in the Time of COVID-19, in the episode notes on my website. But for now, here's the second half of our interview. If you find this episode helpful, do check out episode 45 as well. But for now, we pick up the conversation at a point where Richard is explaining some of the messages for regular supporters that he has seen to be successful over recent months. Don't underestimate how um, how engaging supporters, saying we are here, and even people who um, take your regular givers. So if you have regular givers, chances are they've probably funded a fair bit of your reserves over time because it tends to be fairly flexible funding. So the message is, you know, because of you, you know, we've managed to see through this period. So even if they're not giving right now um, uh, or they need to stop, actually they have helped you. So you can get that you can get that communication across to people and make them feel good about uh, the support they've given, um, and you know, of course, let them know. The last thing your supporters are going to want to hear is, "Oh, we're going to have to close down this service um, because you know we haven't got the funds." You know, what they want to hear is give them the opportunity to help you avoid having to make choices like that um, in the first place, and you might be pleasantly surprised at how people will respond. If you communicate authentically, you know, I'm not saying sort of spice things up. I'm saying, you know, communicate genuinely to to organisations about your situation, um, you know, the demands on your resources. Um, and 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 you, you, like I say, you may be pleasantly surprised. And the other thing I was going to say is when you talk about that feedback loop, just in practical terms, you know, what do you think Asma UK seem to do and or what are your top tips for getting that feedback loop right? So that if we are going to be potentially a little more bold in you know, making this opportunity in more places or at the same on the same page of the website where we're giving advice or whatever, um, how do we do it in practice? to make it easier for us to learn as we go through that process? And indeed, you know, any tips about how we handle complaints and or learn for the, from them in a timely fashion? Yeah, so a variety of uh, techniques we came across. There were organisations uh, doing supporter surveys um, uh, and that gave them insights. Uh, there were others just simply asking people when at the moment people gave, whether it was online or on the phone or even from a mailing, can you tell us why you're supporting us right now? Um, uh, getting on, you know, 
making those phone calls. I mean, I cannot think of a better time to speak to people and say, you know, certainly when they've given to say, we'd just like to say thank you, um, but an opportunity to, to speak to people. So it's, it's sort of clocking, you know, all those touch points that you can have um, and using it as a, a way of uh, feeding back. Sometimes it's just stopping and thinking about your supporters. You know, we tend to focus you know, on our work and the beneficiaries. But if you stop and think about your supporters, it can really readdress how you might message something. So um, Jane George of the RNLI, and they've got an amazing campaign uh, lined up. I, I, you know, I, I, I'm, it's going to be fantastic. But they've actually held back on it. Um, and the reason is they felt that the key thing people are thinking about right now is what? It's family. You know, we're all thinking about families and, um, and our family and friends and so on. And so their Christmas appeal, they've decided to change and they've gone out with this message. Um, they've gone out with um, the thoughts of, uh, of, of the families of their lifeboat crew volunteers. So the mums, the fathers, the children, you know, who are basically saying thank you to supporters for looking after my dad, my mum, my daughter, my son, you know, when they go out because they have the best kit possible, um, you know, when they're doing these extraordinary rescues in, you know, let's face it, British waters are not the nicest places to go out, particularly at this time. And that's just, you just know that's going to work, don't you? It's just going to land and resonate right now. Whereas if they'd gone out with the other campaign, which is, you know, it's a fabulous campaign as it is, it, they realise we need to hold off on that. And that has just come about by rooting themselves and thinking about their supporters. So it doesn't have to be that sophisticated. It's just, you know, have that mindset. And then if you can layer it on, because there's nothing more powerful when you've got a maybe a chief executive or a trustee who's kicking back a bit, and you can say, oh, well, I did speak to someone, and this is what they told me. And I've learned you only need one or two of those, and that can shift a meeting because it sort of knocks on the head, you know, some um, misplaced assumption, you know, that people don't want to give right now. So uh, I think that's why it's really good to just have a few. Um, uh, if you can boost it with surveys and so on, that's great. Um, but, you know, if you haven't got that capacity, um, you know, don't worry. There are, you know, it's just thinking about your supporters for a moment. Um, and most organisations, you know, are able to, should be able to put themselves in their supporters' shoes. Um, you know, what, one of the tips um, I give in the workshops we give at the moment is, is you should be thinking about a real supporter all the time, you know, and and what their name is and, you know, what would they be thinking right now? And I think if you do that, it'll help reframe how you go about your fundraising um, in this rather strange um, period. Yes, so uh, there's all kinds of things we could do, but at its simplest, if we're planning a new approach, a better approach and a new appeal in the next few months, and we want to, step one, to check that that approach is likely to succeed and be good for supporters. If you haven't already done so, do whatever research you can and that hopefully will inform and make it more likely to be insights driven. But equally, an extra benefit of doing that at its simplest, making those extra five phone calls to those people who support and care 
that can absolutely give you the internal positioning to help your colleagues who may may have to sign off on the decision see that we're we're not doing this because it's your good idea we're doing it because it will you know it makes sense and is even is in the interests of the people it's designed to serve yeah and it's sort of similar principle why we created this um uh, booklet if you like you know we want it to be used as a resource that fundraisers can point to and say hey look at this um you know, to help not only give them confidence, but also as a bit of evidence that they can share, whether it's with their senior team, whether it's with their colleagues or trustees, you know, that fundraising um, done well, um, you know, is getting good results. Um, so, I, yeah, I think it's all about building your confidence because if you're, that's one of our other insights, you know, if the fundraiser is feeling good in themselves, if they're not feeling stressed out, you know, pushed on, then that will come across when they talk to supporters. Um, and don't, I know there are fundraisers under a lot of pressure, you know, particularly those, uh, you know, maybe in, in smaller organisations or maybe those that are heading up a team. Um, and so, you know, that can, you know, that can work against them, you know, particularly when they're engaging supporters. Um, Whereas the opposite happens, you know, if they're enthusiastic, um, if they feel supported by their organisation, um, when they engage with supporters, uh, I'm sure they'll be able to tell that. Um, yeah. Yes. And if we just pick up on that bit, is, it's been one of the themes we've talked about on the podcast inevitably over the last six months. But in terms of things that leaders can do or organisations can more proactively, deliberately do to help. Uh, look after people, help them feel trusted, uh, you know, to, to be able to notice if someone might be struggling because they are isolated or, you know, grieving or have health challenges or, you know, just the, the stresses of, you know, juggling workload with, with childcare and so on. Within your research, did you notice some examples of things that some charities, large or small, have been doing to help get that first bit right of looking after the people within the organization yeah well they, the best uh, there was an example in the report that we used which is the children's society um and joe jenkins there you know talks through the work that they did um not just with fundraisers but across the whole organization because they realized that they needed to do it across the whole organization in order for the fundraisers to be able to do their job as well but there are you know it's and, you know, I guess it's acknowledging the pressure that fundraisers are experiencing, thinking how to inspire and motivate them, um, you know, how to help them still get close to the cause. Um, perhaps giving the freedom and permission to go out and hear what's going on, you know, whether it's using free resources like Sophie um, or, you know, taking part in listening in some of the webinars and podcasts that are available right now. Um, so you can seek out new learning. Um, and it's just um, seeing that part of your fundraising strategy is about how to maintain the energy levels of your fundraisers. You know, that, that's quite key. Um, and that seems to sort of, you know, come up um, so many times. Uh, and I'm sure that plays out in terms of... Um, 
just the, I mean, we've been doing this, what, you know, we've been in this situation since the end of March. It's, it's a long time. So it's, it's a marathon, not a sprint really, isn't it? And so therefore, yeah, how are you going to you know, sort of maintain that energy across your team? Absolutely. It comes back to your why or your mission, you know, you know, what's, what, you know, how that's been affected. Um, and, you know, that case for, for why you need support right now. But I, if you go to the booklet, you'll see lots of great little practical tips. You'll read examples like the one from Children's Society. And, um, and we know we haven't got all the answers, but we're pretty sure it will point you in the right direction. And of course, we'd love to hear of others so we can continue to sort of get this message out over the coming months as well. And I remember one of the examples I really liked in terms of tactics, I think it was the Children's Society, where the organisation quite deliberately helped people find others geographically in the country close to them and making it easier and more likely that they could meet up for a walk or something similar. Was that your understanding of that tactic? Yeah, yeah. So I think they called it in your neighbourhood. Um, so you connect with people who live locally because um, they couldn't meet in their offices. Um, uh, and uh, Joe shares an example of walking on the South Downs with colleagues who lived on the South Coast. Um, but they did other things. They set up notice boards, uh, which included everything from Netflix recommendations, books to read, feedback and learning from conferences and events. You know, so encouraging this because you know, so you can sort of set the framework that makes people think, oh, okay, it, it's to do this. Um, uh, you know, having um, obviously Zoom sessions together, and if you're a large organisation, creating breakouts just so people can connect uh, with others who they might not otherwise deal with um, on a daily or weekly basis. Um, so I, there's lots of creative examples there, and I think it just sends out the right message, um, you know, that that the organisation is there for you and they realise that you're, you know, you're having to really step up at this time. Yeah, I think it's making that point is you can't just say, you know, we really value your mental health. You've got to um, see some, you know, practical actions and um, senior, you know, senior leaders um, leading by example as well. Yes. And, and another key thing, um, Katie Simmons from the British Red Cross was recently on our breakfast club talking about the importance of regular uh, surveys th that you're really serious about and you genuinely want your your colleagues to, to fill in and taking that regularly so so as to to not just at a micro level because managers are good listeners but at a macro level you're you're seeing in the data are our efforts to look after are people currently working or are they not and what could we learn to do more of and i gather the children's society have been doing some similar things really well as well hi it's rob and i wanted to jump into the middle of this episode really quickly to tell you about something i'm so excited about which is the way that our bright spot members club has been helping fundraisers to not only survive but also to do really well to raise funds so effectively during the pandemic through the club, our 300 members get access to a whole library of my best training films, as well as regular live coaching sessions to help you handle whatever challenges are coming at you each week. And we've also found that handling these challenges has not just been about getting the right advice or strategy, it's also been about morale. And we've found that the encouragement and help that our members get from each other has really helped them to stay positive. 
If you're not yet a member, but you'd like to find out more, go to brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. That's brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join. I would love to welcome you to the club and do my utmost to help you succeed in your fundraising. For now though, back to the interview, as I wanted to ask Richard about a particular example of donor care that I liked from the report. I wanted to pick up on one of my favourite examples that you were telling me about the other day from your research, again, to do with a relatively small organisation, which was Guts UK. Could you remind me of some of what they've been doing so well in the last few months? Uh, So Julie Harrington um, is the chief executive there um, and a fundraiser by background, Um, you know, really understands the importance of giving uh, supporters the best possible experience. And the example she shared was of a a young man who'd done a fundraiser, um, uh, and I think it was in memory of his mother, um, and he got friends to join him. Uh, I think it was climbing various peaks, um, so I guess they were in a bubble. Um, anyway, he wanted to somehow acknowledge the support from his friends that helped him get through a difficult time um, and raise some money. You know, So that's, again, fundraising, helping people, you know, uh, uh, when they've lost someone very close to them, it, it can be fantastic for that. Um, and without hesitation, Guts UK just organised medals for each of his friends. Um, and it's that sort of thing where uh, just acting on, you know what, we need to help him thank his friends for their support, uh, for his friends for, for the support that he was given. Um, and I just thought that was just a great example. Really, really simple. Um, uh, and there's um, an anecdote um, I heard um, in, you know, in a much larger organisation, Oxfam, where someone, um, I think, tweeted something to the effect that his, his daughter uh, was a great supporter of Oxfam, but wasn't old enough to perhaps receive some of the communications. And uh, the, the team that sort of look after supporters spotted this and then put together this wonderful pack um, and sent it uh, uh, to this um, to his daughter. Uh, and of course, he was amazed and just, you know, really loved it. But it was the fact that they had permission to do so. You know, they didn't have to go up the ranks of, um, you know, they had been told, you know, when moments like this happen, just, just get on with it. Um, and I think that's pretty much the essence of, of what Guts UK are doing, you know, just feel what's right in terms of um, making supporters feel valued. And we know, you know, it's not just for what they've just done, you know, it's for what's to come. And as I've learned, I mean, particularly during my time at SolarAid, you do not know who people know. Uh, and an ordinary donor, you know, that you may have tagged on your database, they could open the door to a foundation, a corporate partner, potential to give a major gift. You know, it's not just about, I know we talk about the legacy gift at the end. Nowadays, we're so much better connected. And therefore, I think right now, if you make people feel good in this period, they're going to remember you far more um, than any other time. Uh, And that has got to count for something. So, you know, I think it's thinking about that. If, If you can give people, you know, such a good experience, a really good feeling, they're going to value that. Um, and maybe there's a time where they feel, oh, okay, I can, I can give back um, in response to um, 
how such and such an organisation helped me get through. You know, what is, you know, it'll be looking back in years to come, won't we? We'll be, we'll be talking about this um, for some time. Yes. What I uh, find interesting about when I hear examples like that excellent story from Guts UK is, is I have found many charities respond saying, well, of course, why wouldn't you send the medals? And what I have found is you'd hope you would, wouldn't you? But my key question to any leader listening is, have you as a leader properly helped everyone in your team know that, that you want your staff to take a risk, maybe find a tiny bit of budget? Have you made it easy for them that that is what you want them to do? Or actually, if you're really, and this is a key thing that comes from through in that excellent book, The Power of Moments by Chip and Dan Heath, when they give examples of this, these extraordinary, generous, wonderful things that hotel staff sometimes do. You know, people have been on my courses, they know the Joshi the Giraffe story, which I won't go into now. But the, the point in the book is, um, does everyone in your team know that they've got permission to take what might feel like small risks or large risks to go the extra mile for people? Because if you haven't quite deliberately been really explicit that you want them to, you're not only aiming for efficiency, you're sometimes wanting people to go the extra mile and find a bit of money for, for, some, for some medals or go to, go to the extra trouble of putting together that special pack for that child, even if it wouldn't initially seem like an efficient way to spend your time. I think unless we're careful as leaders of an organisation, we might think, of course, my staff would do that. They know to do that, don't they? But in practice, we have to be aware that our teams might feel under pressure to be efficient and therefore they might have the good idea to put together the special pack or to get the medals. But they might also fear that, you know, they would never get it, would get it signed off or that they might be accused of, you know, failing to meet their initial KPI. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, um, it's exactly that. It's leading by example, giving permission, but it's also going to be quite difficult, isn't it? You know, sending a thank you card, handwritten thank you card, is going to be harder to do now, but it's going to be valued more. So, you know, get across the message. It's not about the quick, you know, oh, let's just do responses by email. It's making it, um, you know, it's going to that trouble. So, Richard, if the listeners would like to read this report or they'd like to find out more, maybe even watch the webinar you recorded, how should they go about doing that? Uh, probably the most straightforward way is Google supporter experience and then Chartered Institute of Fundraising or CIOF um, and it will come up. It will come up in the feed. Um, you'll see it on the home uh, pages of the Chartered Institute of Fundraising. We're going to put the webinar up on their YouTube channel. Um, so that will go up, might not be for a few days yet. Um, and so listen to that. I think you could listen to that and that will inspire you to read the report or you could do it the other way, other way around. Okay, great. Uh, so I really would encourage the listeners to, to go ahead and do that. It will really, there's loads of great examples there. Some sound, helpful principles that A, inspire you, but B, also potentially help you persuade some colleagues to work more in line with these uh, sound ideas. Richard, thank you so much for sharing all these ideas 
examples and tips. Uh, we need to finish very soon now. I look forward to catching up with you very soon. But for now, Richard Turner, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. You're very welcome, Rob. Thanks for inviting me on. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. Bye. Well, I hope you found our discussion helpful. If you enjoyed this episode, do check out episode 45 as well to get the first half of our conversation. And also do remember to subscribe to the podcast today so you don't miss out on the other episodes we have planned to help your fundraising during the pandemic. To see a full transcript and a summary of the episode, you can find those on the blog and podcast section of our website, brightspotfundraising.co.uk. And I'll also put a link there to help you find the group's excellent report, Fundraising in the Time of COVID-19. If you'd like to find out more about my training and inspiration site for fundraisers, do check it out at brightspotmembersclub.co.uk forward slash join, as well as regular coaching sessions on a wide range of fundraising and leadership topics. You can take advantage of more than 40 of my video training bundles, as well as our super supportive community. If you're curious, you can join for a single month to test for yourself how helpful this coaching support is for your fundraising. And if you want to get in touch, we'd love to hear from you. We're both on LinkedIn and on Twitter, Richard is at iFundraiser and I am at Woods underscore Rob. Finally, thank you so much for listening today. I really do appreciate it. Until the next time, good luck with all your efforts to create great experiences for your supporters and to make a positive difference this year of all years. Music